Amen. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you to everyone who has served us so well with music. And um, you may not, this might not be something you think about on a week-to-week basis, but there's a lot of work that goes into trying to get everything ready for Sunday. And when we're setting up and tearing down on a weekly basis, we've been in like four different venues this year. We've tried to figure out live streaming. There's been a lot of demands. I'm very thankful for the faithful ministry of um, uh, many in our church, those who serve with, with worship uh, and all the various components there. Uh, let's go ahead and bow and pray, and then we'll get into God's word together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is to gather together. We thank you for your truth and your word, which unites us. Lord, I'm thankful that it's not our politics or our hobbies or how we educate our children or where we're from or our culture that unites us. It's Jesus and his gospel. Lord, I pray that today as we approach your word, we would do so with humble hearts. Lord, we believe that your word is what you use to strengthen your children and to magnify your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our desire today, that Jesus would be lifted up, that he would be seen as glorious and that he would be treasured and loved and embraced and trusted. So God, help us now. We pray that your spirit would minister through me, that your spirit would take your word and apply it to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this year, due to um, a lot of shutdowns and different things that have kind of happened throughout our year because of this virus, there's been a lot of discussion um, about what is and what is not essential. I don't know if I've ever heard that word essential used so much as I have this year. And everyone has different opinions about what different elements of our society should be considered essential and what other elements we can maybe afford to put on pause. But as Christians, as those who believe in Jesus Christ and have come to the foot of the cross in repentance and faith, we are those who believe that Jesus is essential. I don't think that's an overstatement. His life, his death, and his resurrection are essential. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. What this means is that the birth of Jesus, what we celebrate at Christmas, is essential. The birth of Christ is absolutely, undeniably necessary. And I think that's something that we would do well to remember every year at this time. Because there's a lot of people who know that Jesus was born. They know the stories. They know about the angels. They know about the virgin birth. They know about the shepherds and the magi and and all of those events. But why did Jesus have to come? Is that something that is in the forefront of our minds, something that is understood and felt at the deepest level? That's a question I'd like to address this morning. Why did Jesus come? And my hope is that this will both deepen your understanding of God's plan for salvation, but also that it will help you to lift up Jesus this year as the glorious Savior that he is. So I'd like to share this morning, and we'll be in several different texts, four different reasons why Jesus had to come. And the first is this. Only Jesus could pass the test. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus makes this statement. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to pass the test, and to understand really the climactic moment of Jesus' birth and understand why he had to come and to grasp the significance of this, that Jesus came to fulfill the law. We have to go back to the beginning to understand what went wrong. If you go all the way back to the garden, we learn that Adam, the first man, was our representative. He was the head of the human race. And as we all know, one day when the serpent approached his wife with a seductive lie, Adam faced a monumental test. And he failed. Adam did not protect his wife. He did not refute the lie of the serpent. He was passive. And he followed Eve in eating the fruit that God had forbidden. And this sin, as you know, brought devastating consequences to all of creation, especially to the human race. Adam and his wife were expelled from the garden. Mankind was at that moment separated from God and banished from his presence and doomed to die. All as a consequence of this sin. All as a consequence of Adam's great failure. But the promise was that a redeemer would come and he would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus is that promised seed. Jesus is the one who comes to undo what has been done, to reverse the effects of the curse. And what that requires is that he, unlike Adam, must pass the test. Jesus would do this by becoming one of us. He took on flesh to become a man so that he could represent us, so that he could pass this test as one of us, so that he could be a second Adam and a better representative, one who would pass the test. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to obey God perfectly. Jesus came to meet all of God's righteous requirements and to pass the test. This is also seen in his baptism. If you flip back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15. John the Baptist was a little bit squeamish about baptizing Jesus. He felt that Jesus was far greater than him. Why should he be baptizing Jesus? But Jesus answers him this way. He says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was on a mission. On a mission to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the law, to meet God's righteous demands, to pass the test on our behalf. And this is seen immediately after Jesus' baptism as he is tested in the wilderness. Satan comes and he tempts Jesus three different times in three different ways. He appeals to him to seduce him, to deviate from the will of his father. But unlike Adam, Jesus clung to the word of God and he refused to deviate from his father's will, he did not fall. He did not fail. He passed the test. And this is important for you and me because God's requirement is perfect obedience. And only Jesus can meet that standard. And this is essential not just because Adam failed. It's not just Adam who can't pass the test. It's you and I who can't pass the test either. Romans chapter 3 reminds us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's not just that you and I don't meet the standard, it's that we can't meet the standard. In Romans 3 verse 20, it says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You won't pass the test, 
you can't pass the test. Your only hope is if someone else can meet God's righteous requirements in your place as your representative. And that is what Jesus came to do. That is why he was born. That's why he became a man. Adam failed, we failed, but Jesus came to pass the test so that he might grant that perfect righteousness, as Stephen taught us several weeks ago, to all who place their faith in him. Paul sums up this amazing transaction in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul says this, For our sake, he, referring to God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is only through Christ that you and I can be considered righteous. And this is why Jesus had to come. His birth is essential because it is the prequel to his righteous life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. This is the only way that sinful failures like you and me could be counted righteous is if Jesus comes and does it in our place. Only Jesus, the second Adam, could pass the test. There's a second reason I want to offer you of why Jesus had to come. Not only is Jesus the only one who could pass the test, but secondly, only Jesus can offer atonement. I want you to turn to Exodus once again, but we're going to skip ahead from where we have been in our sermon series, Exodus chapter 32. We're going to get here again and dive deeper into this passage at some undefined point in the future, whenever we get to chapter 32. But there's this amazing scene in Exodus chapter 32. The people of Israel create a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai as Moses is up on the mountain and the the cloud and the fire and the glory of God is there. And as Moses meets with God, the people grow impatient. They say, we don't know what happened to him. So they come to Aaron and they create this golden calf and they engage in gross immorality and idolatry right under God's nose. But then this amazing, things ha- the amazing thing happens. It, it, and every time I read through this story, it startles me. It grabs my attention. At this point, Moses comes down. He sees what's going on. And there's already been death in the camp and initial consequences for this sin. And the people now recognize their failure. And then Moses, their leader, Moses, who is their mediator, the one who speaks God's words to them and the one who also speaks to God on their behalf, He says this, he knows they are in great danger of God's wrath because of their sin. And in verse 30, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin... But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses knows that the people, that their sin has to be dealt with. He asks God for forgiveness, but then he also offers this. He says, God, if you are intent on immediate justice, then I would like to offer myself in their place. This is amazing to me because Moses understands the theological lesson of that ancient story of Abraham and Isaac. 
That Isaac is on the altar, but God provides a ram as a substitute to take his place. Moses likewise understands the theology of the Passover, that the death of the lamb and the blood on the doorposts signals to God that one has already died in this household, and the firstborn's life can be spared because another has died in his place. Moses understands this, and now he recognizes a people who are in danger of God's wrath, who deserve death, and he attempts to offer himself as a substitute in their place attempting to make atonement for their sin and appease God's wrath. And what does God say to him? God says, no. He says, no. Moses was the greatest leader in Israel's history. Moses is the one who speaks face to face with God. Moses is the one who led them out of Egypt and went head to head with Pharaoh. Moses is the one who gives them the law. But even Moses was not an acceptable substitute for the sinful people. You see, Moses had his own sins. He had his own failures. And he could not atone for the sins of the people. They needed someone greater than Moses. Atonement is a theme that will come to feature heavily in Israel's worship. The sacrifices were a regular event at the tabernacle and later at the temple. The altar was a place of bloodshed. And it reminded the people of what sin costs and what is required in order for them to be cleansed of their sins and enter into God's presence. But those sacrifices, the lambs, the goats, the bulls, they had to be offered over and over and over and over again. They ultimately were not able to atone permanently for the people's sins. They're really intended to point forward to something else, a future sacrifice that would be once and for all. And this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus comes to offer atonement, atonement that even Moses could not make, atonement that no unlimited amount of sacrificial animals could ever make. Only Jesus could do it. Jesus is a fitting representative for the human race, having become a man. And he is an acceptable sacrifice to God because he is sinless and perfect. The lamb with no blemishes, no spots, no imperfections. And so he is able to make atonement. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means to to offer a satisfying sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God and appeases his righteous demands. And Jesus, as a priest, offers not another substitute. Jesus comes as a priest to offer himself. He is not only our priest He is our perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the greater Moses, the true Passover lamb, and he would be the final sacrifice for sinners. Once and for all, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 says, in these sacrifices, referring to the the, the lambs and, and the bulls that were offered, in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
The author of Hebrews recognizes these sacrifices can't ultimately accomplish what we need. It reminds us of our sins, but Jesus has come to make perfect for all time those who are being sanctified, to atone for our sins, to give us the status of holy and righteous before God. You see, it's through the blood of Christ that our sins are cleansed, that God's wrath is satisfied. No amount of sacrifices could do it. Even your own best efforts and all of your good works can't do it. Even a fellow sinner who loves you and wants the best for you can't do it. Only Christ can. Only Jesus. Jesus had to come because only he could make atonement for sinners. So only Jesus could pass the test. Only Jesus could make atonement. And third, only Jesus could defeat death. Only Jesus could defeat death. And that is why he came. That is why he was born. That is why he took on flesh as a man who was able to die so that he could take on death and defeat it. The only way to defeat death was to go through it, and that is what Jesus did. This defeat of death is something that is hinted at in the Old Testament. In Psalm 16, 9, speaking of the Messiah to come, or speaking as the Messiah to come, David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. There's an expectation that the Messiah, the promised one to come, would not ultimately be trapped by the shackles of death. The prophet Isaiah, who speaks with startling clarity about the death of the Lord's servant, writes this in Isaiah 53. And I want you to turn there and see this. In Isaiah chapter 53, we're very familiar with the first part of this chapter. It describes Christ's suffering and him being rejected and despised and experiencing sorrow, bearing our sins, being smitten by God, pierced for our transgressions. But notice how this chapter concludes. The same prophecy that speaks of his suffering and death also writes of future events that will come after that death. In verse 10, in the second half of verse 10 there, it says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yes, the suffering servant will die. But then there is more to come. He will see his offspring. His days will be prolonged. He will be given a rich inheritance, what Isaiah calls a portion with the many, spoil with the strong, because he died and because he redeemed a people through that death. This victory over death is not just prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, demonstrated his power over death. He did this by raising a woman's only son to life, by raising a young girl who had died, bringing her back from the grave. And we all know that famous story of Lazarus, three days, or was it four days? I'm trying to remember now. I don't have it in front of me. It's four days, four days in the grave. He should have been smelling by then. 
And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus obeys. Jesus is demonstrating in all of those stories his power over death. And just in case his disciples didn't understand the Old Testament, and just in case they didn't pick up the object lessons he was giving them by raising these people, Jesus tells his disciples no less than three times that he's going to be arrested in Jerusalem, that he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. Jesus said, this is what I came to do. You see, all of us are going to die. All of us. Just like everyone else since the beginning of time. Even those three people Jesus raised back to life, they died again. But only one has risen from the grave never to die again. There have been a rare few who experienced sort of a rewind of the clock, so to speak, at the hands of Jesus or Elijah or the Apostle Paul. But there is only one who defeated death. And that is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, preaching in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, says this in verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that statement that Peter makes. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. You see, Jesus didn't come to escape death. Jesus didn't come even just to experience death as a victim. No, Jesus came to defeat death. It cannot hold him. And get this, Jesus intends to share that victory over death, that resurrection life with all who believe. Because Jesus rose, we will too. The Apostle Paul rejoices in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. He says, when the perishable, referring to these mortal bodies, puts on the imperishable. He's looking ahead to the resurrection. When the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is sanctified trash talk that Paul is engaging in right here. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has defeated death and we share in that victory through faith in him. Jesus had to come because death was reigning in this world. The birth of Jesus was essential Because only Jesus could defeat death. And he has. He has. But I want to share with you a fourth reason why Jesus had to come. Why he had to become specifically a man. And it's this. Not only was Jesus the only one who could pass the test. Not only is Jesus the only one who could offer atonement. And he's the only one who could defeat death. But finally, only Jesus could reign in righteousness. Only Jesus could reign, establish God's kingdom, and rule over God's earth in perfect righteousness. You know, we started talking about Genesis earlier, going all the way back to the beginning with Adam in the garden. And really, this final point originates in that same place. When God created the world, there was this brand new, young, untouched creation full of potential, full of beauty and blessing. 
And he placed mankind in the garden, not only to enjoy that garden, although they were definitely invited to do that, but he also placed them there to rule it. Adam was given a commission. He had a job to do. As the sole creature who bore the image of God, no other animals have that status, that privilege. Only Adam. Adam was to be God's representative on earth. And Adam was to mediate God's righteous reign over the creation as he tended the garden and as he took dominion over the earth. That word dominion is important. Dominion is kingdom language. Adam was to fulfill a kingly role. God's plan in the beginning was for man to rule over the creation. But we all know what happened. Adam was not a righteous king, was he? He failed. But God's plan of redemption includes not only rescuing sinners, restoring us to relationship with himself. And we celebrate that. It's very personal, and we should. But God's plan also includes the restoration of his kingdom, the rebuilding of what was lost, what was damaged in the garden. And that kingdom requires one who perfectly bears his image. That's Jesus Christ. That kingdom requires one who can reign in perfect righteousness over God's creation and everything in it. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Jesus is the only one who can bring this plan to fruition. Adam couldn't do it. Even David, the best king Israel ever had, falls short. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise that one day a king would come, a descendant of David, and he would establish the kingdom, and he would rule over it in perfect and eternal righteousness. You all know the familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, it says, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promise was that a king was coming who would rule in righteousness for eternity. And that's Jesus. It's Jesus. Those who received the good news of Jesus' birth knew that this child was that promised king. I mean, Gabriel announces it explicitly to Mary in Luke 1, 31. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Listen to this. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That kingdom is being built today. It's being populated with redeemed sinners. That kingdom is growing as people come to faith in Christ. But that kingdom has a great future. It is going to be established physically and literally here in power and glory when Jesus returns. Just as he came the first time to pass the test and atone for sin and defeat death, when Jesus comes back a second time, he's going to finish what he started. He's going to establish his kingdom in fullness and take his rightful place on the throne. 
And what God intended in the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, at that time will come to fruition. That one who perfectly bears his image will mediate his rule over the creation in perfect righteousness. If Jesus doesn't come, there is no kingdom. There is no righteous king. But Jesus did come, and he will come again, and his kingdom will be forever. Jesus is essential. He is essential to God's plan for redemption. He is essential for God's plan to establish and build his kingdom. He's essential for our salvation. So here's the million-dollar question for you today. Will you treat him as essential? Will you? I think a lot of you believe the right thing about Jesus, but how will you respond to him? Will you treat Jesus as just a nice addition to your life? Will you view him as one of several things that are important to you? Or will you perhaps even neglect him altogether? Listen, Jesus is preeminent. And you can, even, you can either live in a way that embraces that reality, or you can live in a way that actually denies it, that relegates Jesus to second place as one of those things you believe in and not as essential. You can either worship and adore Christ as supreme, or you can ignore him. You can center your life and your family and your plans and your Christmas around Jesus or something else. So which will it be? Will you focus more on family and tradition than on Christ this Christmas? Will you be more engaged emotionally in in those things than with Jesus? Will you approach worship and the true Christmas story as kind of a chore Hoops you have to jump through so you can get to the good stuff. Because if you do that, you are minimizing Christ. Treating him as if he is not essential, supreme, preeminent over all. Will you allow yourself this Christmas to feel that other things are more weighty than what Jesus has done? Will you allow current events, personal struggles, challenges, disappointments, Will you allow those things to weigh on you more than what Jesus has done? To do so is to minimize Jesus. Maybe that describes you today. But it doesn't have to. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of idolatry. And embrace the preeminence of Christ this Christmas. I just want to exhort you. Encourage your heart to be engaged in grateful worship this Christmas. Don't let the familiarity of, of, the, of the songs we sing and some of the traditions we celebrate, don't let those things dull your senses. Don't just go through the motions. Christ deserves to be worshipped. And this will take a little bit of work. Perhaps you think that worship should just be some sort of spontaneous emotional reaction And so you just kind of wait to see if it happens to you or not. But that's not the way things are. Worship takes work. And listen, once a week on Sunday morning is not enough to sustain a life of worship to God 
once a week on Sunday morning with the prayer and the scripture and the song here, that's not enough to cultivate a heart that is centered around Jesus. I want to exhort you to give yourself to regular personal prayer and to the private reading of scripture. If Jesus is essential, then seek him, speak with him, listen to him. And let that personal walk with Christ spill over into your family conversations. Let that be one of the things you talk about when you drive in the car or when you sit at the dinner table or when you tuck your kids in at night. And let that personal walk with Christ spill over into your conversations, maybe with your roommate. Talk about scripture with a friend over the phone. And as you engage in this sort of personal worship throughout the week, Let that personal worship bleed over into corporate worship here. When we gather on Sunday as a people who have been seeking Christ all week, who have been talking about Christ all week, who have been rejoicing in and delighting in Jesus all week, then worship on Sunday is going to be vibrant. Because Carrie won't be up here trying to jumpstart a bunch of dead car batteries. I had to do that for our van this last week. It was dead. No, if you've been worshiping all throughout the week and you come here on Sunday, you're going to be charged up already. You will be humbled by his grace, thankful for his love in awe of his glory, and you won't need any cheerleaders to whip you up into a moment of worship. You'll be primed and ready. Let me exhort you to engage your heart this Christmas in worshiping Jesus. And let me also exhort you to do this, to preach to yourself that Christ and what he has accomplished, this story of Christmas and what it leads to with Easter, that what Jesus has accomplished is more weighty, more significant, more impactful than whatever's going on in our current events and whatever's going on even in your personal trials and challenges. All of those things, the stuff going on in the world and the junk we deal with on a day-to-day basis Those things can become like fog on the windshield. They obscure our vision, obstructing our view of what matters most, of Jesus and what he has accomplished. So I want to exhort you to strive to look through and beyond circumstances, trials, disappointments, the burdens that you may be carrying today. Look through and beyond those things to see Jesus as the victor, as the king, as our savior. And we need to pound those truths into our minds and hearts that what Jesus has accomplished is what matters most. What Jesus has accomplished is what matters most. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. So set your focus on Christ and resolve to rest in him and what he has done for us. Jesus is the only one who could pass the test. Jesus is the only one who could make atonement for our sin. He's the only one who could defeat death, and he's the only one who could establish God's kingdom. So aren't you glad that he was born? Aren't you glad that he came to become one of us? Let's live like that. Let's live like that. Let's worship like that. And let's celebrate Christmas like Christians who know and believe that Jesus is essential. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pause to give you all the glory for who you are and all that you have done. 
we recognize this morning that there is salvation in no other name. It's only through you. You're the only one who could do what needed to be done to redeem us, to save us, and to bring all of God's plans to fulfillment. Lord, I pray for this church, that we as a people would see what Jesus has done as being most important, most significant, that that would matter most to us. I pray, God, that as we worship here corporately, that our eyes would be on Jesus. I want to pray, Lord, for those who are not able to be with us today, those who are watching from home, that these truths would encourage them today, that these truths would arm them against feelings of isolation or discouragement or loneliness. I pray that you would infuse joy into all of our hearts as we remember Jesus and what he has done. So God, as we celebrate Christmas this year, I pray that you would help us to keep Jesus at the center, to recognize that he is preeminent over all things. Receive all the glory, Lord, for what happens here in our homes and in our hearts. Amen.